Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program, we begin by sharing a conversation between Project Censored intern Reagan Haney and Alan McLeod, senior staff writer for Mint Press News. They address McLeod's ongoing reporting about how many people in the national security, state, and military industrial complex are increasingly working with media and big tech companies, including video game developers like Activision, maker of the popular Call of Duty which is actually Pentagon propaganda for military recruitment and normalization of violence and war. Later in the program, we turn to media scholar Nolan Higdon to discuss his latest, No Turning Back, We Cannot Reverse the Damage Done by Poor Pandemic Reporting, but the Fourth Estate Must Do Better. Higdon addresses the slew of flawed reporting from the establishment press during the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on the public. Finally, we talk with Andy Lee Roth, Associate Director of Project Censored for Press Freedom Day, which is May 3rd. All coming up on this week's Project Censored show. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we are delighted to welcome the Project Censored academic intern for this past year, Reagan Haney. As our co-host, Reagan is a senior at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. I actually had the pleasure of speaking there last month. And Reagan has been contributing to research to our Validated Independent News program. She's working on co-authoring the Junk Food News chapter with us this year. And today, we are delighted to bring Reagan into the mix. And she's going to be doing an interview with none other than Alan McLeod. Listeners of this show certainly should know Alan McLeod. He's a guest fairly regularly, senior writer at Mint Press News. We're going to talk about a really important article he did a while back, and he's doing some follow-ups on, called Call of Duty is a Government PSYOP, and these documents prove it. So with that, I'm going to hand things over now to Reagan. And Reagan, looking forward to your conversation with Alan today. Hi, I am very happy to be here. Very happy to be speaking to Alan McLeod. My goal here is to get an understanding of your article that Mickey has mentioned. And I was hoping that you could essentially unpack your research as well as your findings and give us a little bit of context surrounding the relationship between the Pentagon and Call of Duty video game developers, as well as the propaganda that comes from that. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be back with you guys. So I'm an investigative journalist, and I guess for the past 18 months, probably the main theme of my work has been exploring the U.S. government's increasingly intimate relationship with media of all shapes and sizes. For instance, highlighted how huge Silicon Valley giants like Google, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook are now filled to the brim with agents of the national security state from the FBI, CIA, Department of Defense, and other three-letter agencies and how those quote-unquote former spooks now work in highly politically sensitive fields like trust and safety and content moderation. I've also looked at the Pentagon's relationship with film and media and television and how the DOD has co-produced and written scripts for more than 800 Hollywood movies and more than 1,000 TV shows, including many of the biggest blockbusters out there. And now I've really turned my eye to having a look at the military's role in subverting the video games industry in order to sell a more pro-war, pro-military message. 
if you know anything about video games, you've probably heard of Call of Duty. It's one of the biggest franchises in the entire industry. It's a first-person military shooter. And what I found out, pretty much the title suggests it, it is a government psyop, and these documents prove it. So documents obtained under the Freedom of Information Act and shared with me show how the military is working closely with Activision Blizzard, the producers of Call of Duty, to promote war, recruitment, and the U.S. military interests in general. In September 2018, for example, the U.S. Air Force flew Activision Blizzard producer Coco Francini to their headquarters in Florida. The explicit reason for doing so, the emails wrote, was to, quote, showcase, end quote, their hardware and to make the entertainment industry, quote, more credible advocates, end quote, for the U.S. war machine. This is a great opportunity to educate this community and make them more credible advocates for us in the production of any future movies and television productions on the Air Force and Special Tactics community, wrote one of the Air Force uh, community relations chiefs. This really seems to have worked because many of the weapons and vehicles Francini was shown on that day in Florida ended up being central pieces in the Call of Duty games. And also through my own work, I found a host of just incredible hires coming through Activision Blizzard over the last few years. In fact, their board and leadership council now looks far more like that of a US government department or a weapons manufacturer than a fun entertainment company. This includes the company's COO, who until 2018 was third in command of the Central Intelligence Agency, or the company's senior counsel, who is a Bush-era official who was nearly made head of the FBI under Trump, but instead that appointment was nixed and she became the executive at a video game company instead. So these sorts of connections really highlight the extraordinary links between the national security state and the supposedly frivolous but gigantic and influential entertainment companies like Activision Blizzard, to the point where I feel comfortable describing video game franchises like Call of Duty and the other ones that Activision Blizzard produces as state media. As to your last point, why is this so important? I mean, video games are a gigantic business. The last Call of Duty grossed over a billion dollars in sales in the first 10 days alone. And they're also a huge avenue for soft power and ideology. The medium itself kind of lends itself to this. Unlike a movie where you maybe watch it once and perhaps you like it, perhaps you don't like it, people play video games for days, weeks, even months on end. And not only that, they're particularly popular among children and adolescents of a particularly impressionable age. So these susceptible young boys play this game over and over and see a glorified image of war that the military uses to recruit them into this war machine. They're seen as light entertainment, and so people don't really have their guards up like they would if they were, for instance, listening to a politician speaking. And so it is their very apparent frivolity which actually makes them such a potent vehicle for ideology to be transmitted. It's really interesting that you brought up the aspect of weapons manufacturing and their connection to the video game. I was talking to a friend of mine who played a lot of Call of Duty in high school, and he mentioned to me that he can now identify any gun in any movie simply because he's played so much Call of Duty. And that partnership essentially allows them to have the most updated military technologies in their video games. That was wild to me. 
But going forward, when I think of the military entertainment complex, the first thing that comes to my mind is manufacturing of American war propaganda. And I know you touched on this a little bit before, but can you discuss the various strategies and narratives that the military uses to enforce their agenda in Call of Duty? Generally, if media companies accept help from the military, then they really give up creative control over the script and the overall direction of the artwork. With video games, it's a little bit different because developers don't really need access to battleships or jet fighters to make the game like they do if they're making a movie or a TV show. But nevertheless, the documents that I got show that the military are extremely keen to invite entertainment executives into their world to wine them and dine them and to make them into allies. If a game, movie or TV show is not to the Department of Defense's liking, i.e. if it doesn't have the right message or representation of the military, then the DOD will either demand extensive rewrites or reject any cooperation at all. With movies, this is a virtual death sentence as it's simply too costly to make a glitzy war film without the military underwriting the costs by providing them with free hardware or thousands of extras. But this also happens with video games as well. So, for example, the FOIAD documents reveal that in 2012, a Call of Duty producer approached the Department of Defense for help on a new game, but was rejected outright because the script revolved around the U.S. fighting a futuristic war with China, something which in 2010, the Department of Defense was keen to avoid. I think that's kind of ironic now, seeing as the U.S. is gearing up for a fight over Taiwan with China. But yeah, likely because of military objections, that Call of Duty game was never made. And so if one of the biggest entertainment companies nixes a project because of minimal pushback from the government, what do you think happens to smaller companies? And there's also just so many cases of pure falsification of history, which we could go into as well. That's actually my next question. I know you mentioned the falsification of history in your article, and I'm aware of a few campaigns like the Highway of Death. That's a very infamous campaign in Call of Duty. As well as, this isn't necessarily a falsification of history, but it's definitely propaganda is the no Russian operation. So can you provide us with a brief summary of these campaigns, as well as the potential that they might have, or the potential effect that they might have on their audience? There are so many to choose from, but let's take the most recent game, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. It starts off the first mission, uh, ludicrously presents a general, an Iranian general, as under Russia's thumb and who is supplying terrorists with aid. This general is clearly based on Qasem Soleimani, a Iranian general and statesman who the Trump administration assassinated in 2020 under false pretenses. The first mission, you have to kill Soleimani via drone. And if you don't do it, then you can't proceed. And this is actually glorifying a major war crime that the Trump administration carried out in 2020. A lot of people don't actually know that Soleimani was killed in Iraq, and he was in Iraq, not Iran, because he had been invited to peace talks with Saudi Arabia to try to establish a detente among those two countries to try to bring peace to the Middle East for once. This, as we're speaking, seems to actually be happening now in the cold light of 2023, but they originally tried to do this in 2020. Soleimani is regarded as a hero inside Iran. A poll done by the University of Maryland found that more than 80% of Iranians consider him to be either strongly in approval of him or somewhat in approval of him. And this was before his assassination. 
And so ultimately, what we have in the latest Call of Duty game is the glorification of a major war crime. And this just continues on throughout all of the games. So likewise, in Call of Duty Ghosts, for instance, the plot is set in Venezuela, where players have to fight against General Almagro, who is a socialist military leader, clearly modeled on former President Hugo Chavez. Like Chavez, Almagro wears a red berry and uses Venezuela's oil wealth to forge an alliance of independent Latin American nations against the United States. As most people are probably aware, Washington did try to overthrow Chavez and his successor, Nicolas Maduro, multiple times. In the climax of the game, the sixth mission, players must shoot and kill Almagro from close range to continue. Now, when it comes to killing foreign leaders, sometimes it's even more blatant than this. So Call of Duty Black Ops, a 2010 game, it revolves around players assassinating a real figure, Fidel Castro of Cuba. They describe him as a dictator. And if you shoot him in the head, you're met with a huge, gory, supposedly artistic, beautiful scene of uh, Castro's head falling back and the blood spattering the uh, lens. And if you do this, you obtain a bronze, quote, death to dictators trophy. And so thus, players are forced to carry out digitally what Washington has tried to do hundreds of times. I'll give you one last example. As you mentioned, the highway of death. That was a real incident during the first Iraq war where the United States forces trapped fleeing Iraqi troops on Highway 80, shooting out the front and back of the convoy of these uh, desperate people trying to escape the war zone. They then proceeded to just go on a killing spree, killing anybody they could. Nobody knows how many people died, but even people like Colin Powell, who was Joint Chiefs of Staff back then, described it as wanton killing and slaughter for slaughter's sake. So this, again, could be considered a major war crime. But in Call of Duty Modern Warfare, this event does take place for dramatic effects. However, it's not the United States doing the killing. It's actually Russia doing the killing, thereby whitewashing a war crime by blaming it on an official enemy. So the effect this has on the audience is it's a huge propaganda coup for the United States to try to convince young people that the sort of history, this sort of history didn't happen. And some of the sickest, bloodiest uh, chapters in the modern history of the world were actually committed by our enemies, not by ourselves. So it allows the United States to frame their enemies as monsters and present US special forces who, by their own numbers, have launched more than 250 foreign interventions since the end of the Cold War to get away with it scot-free. They're essentially getting people to love their oppressors and hate those trying to liberate them, as Malcolm X said. And, you know, most gamers, particularly kids, are not very political. And so they don't have this sort of intellectual reservoir of understanding to see that they are being force-fed pure ideology from the trash can of history. This is what the radical Italian academic Antonio Gramsci called the process of establishing hegemony the means through which elites get the population to see their positions, their understandings, their tastes, and their outlooks as the default and correct position in society. And so, yeah, what I'd say is games are serious business, and the military understands this. The battlefield is not just in the Middle East or the Pacific, but it's for our minds as well. 
I'd like to remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff. You are listening right now to a conversation between Alan McLeod, the senior writer for Mint Press News, talking about a recent article, Call of Duty is a Government PSYOP. He's in conversation with Project Censored intern Reagan Haney. They will continue their conversation about this important subject, propaganda and indoctrination of people through video games, after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we are welcoming Project Censored intern Reagan Haney. She is a senior at Loyola Marymount University and has been working with us this year on a variety of research projects, including validated independent news stories for top uh, underreported stories. One of the stories up for review this year is Alan McLeod's Call of Duty is a Government PSYOP, a great investigative piece that Alan did at Mint Press News where he's senior staff writer. We're going to now continue the conversation between Reagan Haney and Alan McLeod. Reagan? So, Alan, I know you were just talking about the effect of Call of Duty on its audience. And in my research, I had found a lot of stuff about the esports world. And I was wondering how the military has inserted itself into that landscape and what do you think their motive is for this um specifically their involvement with the social media platform twitch and what are the implications of a government agency joining these streaming platforms just a point of reference for people who are not terminally online or young um esports is professional video game playing and a lot of young people tune in to watch the best gamers battle against each other for real prizes what's the military's motive I guess their prime motive in all of this is, in a word, grooming. They are trying to recruit kids into joining the military, uh, quite possibly breaking the law in the process. Recruiters can't approach children in real life, but somehow in cyberspace, they're allowed to push a message of joining the army, implying that you can join up, sign up, and game all day, as if that's what life is actually like in a barracks. In fact, a lot of the language they use is similarly eerily the same as uh, online groomers. There's even more pernicious and bizarre attempts to groom adolescents into the army's ranks. One of them is Haley Luhan, a 21-year-old TikTok star who has nearly three quarters of a million followers on TikTok alone. Probably 50% of her content on Instagram or TikTok is sexually suggestive pictures. Maybe 25% is memes. And the other 25% is hardcore army recruitment videos. The clear implication of her content is essentially, hi boys, if you join up, you'll get to be with me. In loads of her videos, she keeps joking that she is an an army psyop. But here's the thing, she literally is a member of the US Army's Psychological Operations Brigade. And her videos make it clear that she spends most of her time on a military base. So I think all of this wink, wink, I'm a psyop stuff is trying to get around regulations about lying during recruitment. Interestingly, though, all of this hard and creative selling does not appear to be working with young people. A recent poll found that 
only 9% of young Americans would consider serving in the military. And all branches of the armed forces are facing huge shortfalls in recruitment right now. The army was, for instance, 25% below its target last year. And so perhaps that suggests that the kids are all right after all. It's really interesting seeing the downfall of military recruitment. And it's very obvious that the military is very eager to strengthen those recruitment numbers. I mean, their involvement in in Twitch is very interesting to me. Um, I know that you also mentioned how there was this bait and switch sort of giveaway package where Twitch users were sort of directed to this this giveaway where they were giving giving away one of their like latest video games or something. And it ended up taking them to an army recruitment page, which is against the law. And then also I, I read that Twitch users were banned for asking military members what their favorite war crime was. Considering how heavily censored the Pentagon's actions are, the military's relationship with Call of Duty has received a fair amount of coverage from academics and independent journalists. So is there anything else about their influence that has not been covered that you think deserves more attention? One thing I just mentioned earlier maybe deserves expanding upon, and I think that is just the level and the amount of former U.S. national security state operatives who now have senior positions, very important and influential roles within Activision Blizzard. So, for instance, Francis Townsend is Activision Blizzard's senior counsel, and until September, she was the chief compliance officer and executive vice president for corporate affairs as well. Now, who is Fran Townsend? Well, She has a long history in the U.S. national security state. She started off as the head of intelligence for the Coast Guard. And then in the early 2000s, she was the Secretary of State's counterterrorism deputy. That was Condoleezza Rice's right-hand woman. And in 2004, President Bush appointed her to his intelligence advisory board as well. She was the White House's most senior advisor on terrorism and homeland security, right at the height of the Patriot Act and the wake of 9-11. Townsend worked closely with people like George Bush and Condoleezza Rice and really became the face of the Bush administration's war on terror. In fact, she was one of the people who really helped popularize the term enhanced interrogation techniques, which was a Bush-era euphemism for torturing people. Worse still, she appears, at least according to a lot of very high up sources, to have been directly involved in torture herself. For instance, Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Jordan, who is the officer in charge of the notorious Abu Ghraib prison in Baghdad, he alleged on on camera and uh, under oath that Townsend put pressure on him multiple times to ramp up the torture program at Abu Ghraib to try to get results. She doesn't seem to have suffered any professional consequences for this. To this day, she is a director at the Atlantic Council, which is the brains of NATO. During the Trump administration, she was hotly tipped to become the director of national intelligence. And in fact, it was reported that President Trump offered her the role of director of the FBI. We don't know why she didn't take it, but instead of taking that job, she ended up working at this seemingly incongruous career detour going to become an executive at a video games company instead. And Townsend is far from the only person we could talk about. Perhaps the most blatant one is Brian Bulatow, who I mentioned before. Until 2018, he was the chief operating officer of the CIA, 
which means that he was third in command of the agency. He was known as Mike Pompeo's attack dog. And when Pompeo moved from the CIA to become Secretary of State, Bulatow went with him and he was appointed Under Secretary of State for Management. And after Trump lost the election, Bulatow went straight from his senior job at the State Department to become one of the most senior people at Activision Blizzard, despite having zero entertainment industry experience. And there's loads more people uh, that I profiled in the article, but that should give you an idea about what Activision Blizzard's board is like. Ultimately, then, these people have no business whatsoever running a video games company, and their appointments are, frankly, impossible to fathom in any honest world. But they do become completely understandable if seen through the lens of the US government trying to impose control over another key medium of communication. And that's how I think really we should be looking at this. And more broadly speaking, what do you think the future implications are of the military's relationships with video game developers? And how do you think that this may affect America's future wars and imperialism? You brought up China very briefly. I've been thinking a lot about the potential impact on like forever wars and things like that. Also with the potential future of virtual reality gaming. I guess I'm reminded of when I covered NATO's 70th anniversary, they held a big meeting whereby the head honchos of the organization, they really described how they saw NATO's future role much more in cyberspace than just on the battlefield. And so I think we're only going to see more of this co-option of video games and online life more generally. Future wars are already becoming digitized and gamified. In fact, as you mentioned, drone warfare, it really already strongly resembles a video game, except that there's no respawn for people killed and it's game over for them. Middle Eastern drones are piloted by people in Utah and Nevada. They're literally using Xbox controllers And that's deliberate to try and appeal to gamers to try to bring them into this uh, system. And the interfaces are also deliberately made to resemble video games as well. In fact, I'm reminded of when Prince Harry went to Afghanistan as a helicopter pilot, and he described mowing down scores of Afghans. He described it as just like a video game. And that's really what this is all about, desensitizing people to taking other people's lives. The US military has produced its own video games, such as Airman Challenge and America's Army, both directly pitched as uh, recruitment campaigns aimed at young people. And so I guess we're going to see more of these two worlds coming even closer into contact than they were before. If there's a solution to this, it lies in critical media literacy, which is something that Project Center champions. We can't simply accept what we're being fed, especially if it's from gigantic corporations that are linked to the government. We really have to scrutinize what we are consuming, not just in terms of news, but also in terms of soft entertainment as well. As Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And likewise, if you're not critically evaluating what you're consuming, you might just be swallowing anything. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you for coming and speaking with me. And thank you, Mickey, for for hosting this. Alan, keep up the great work that you do. Anything else that you'd like to add or a place where people can follow you and learn more about your work? I guess I'd just say that video game developers who, as I just described, are now staffed by the same people as the Department of Defense, 
and are essentially acting as recruiters, trying to get kids to sign their lives away to serve Washington's agenda worldwide. And that's something we really have to be clear about what is going on with video games. They're not just this fun little thing featuring an, an Italian plumber anymore. They're big business and the military is involved. In terms of where you can follow me, you can find me at mintpressnews.com. Or if you're on Instagram, I'm at alan.r.mcleod. Or if you're on Twitter, you can follow me at Alan R. McLeod. And McLeod is spelled M-A-C-L-E-O-D. And it's Alan with one L, A-L-A-N. That's right. So Reagan Haney, Alan McLeod, thanks so much for being with us in this segment of the Project Censored Show today. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Always a pleasure. Up next, we welcome back media critic and scholar Nolan Higdon, a regular guest on our program. We'll be talking about a recent long-form dispatch on media politics he did recently for Project Censored. No turning back. We cannot reverse the damage done by poor pandemic reporting, but the fourth estate must do better. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the segment, we are honored to welcome back Dr. Nolan Higdon. He is a media critic and scholar, author and co-author of numerous books, including The Anatomy of Fake News, United States of Distraction, Podcaster's Dilemma, Let's Agree to Disagree, a book we did for Rutledge on critical thinking and critical media literacy. And uh, most recently, he's one of the co-authors of the Media and Me, which is a guide to critical media literacy for young people. Nolan is regularly interviewed around the country on issues around media and politics. And of course, we're delighted to bring him back here today. Nolan Higdon, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Mickey. So Nolan, recently, and you know, you and I have talked about this for quite some time, and it, you managed to put together more than 3,000 words, you know, almost a chapter length piece here for one of the longer dispatches we publish at projectcensored.org. No turning back. We can't reverse the damage done by poor pandemic reporting, but the fourth estate must do better. Just in the beginning here, we had a disclaimer about this because anytime it seems that people begin talking about pandemic reporting and want to criticize media coverage of it, people tend to focus on the subjects rather than the overall meta-analysis of the uh, establishment press coverage, their biases, their censorship. And so in the article, naturally, you talk about issues around masks, you mentioned media coverage of vaccines and virus origins, but clearly the article is not about the efficacy of masks or mandates. It's not about where the virus actually came from. It's about how the corporate media framed and covered those events and unfortunately how they often botched reporting on such crucial matters, censored legitimate counter narratives that posed important questions, and ultimately diminished its own credibility and trustworthiness in the eyes of the American public which this year is now at an historic low point. And simply put, based on the article, we, the people, deserve better from our fourth estate. And they really have some important work to do to restore public trust. Nolan Higdon, tell us what your article is about. The article is not about necessarily the, the science behind any of these things, masks, the, or, the origin of COVID or any of that. But it's really about looking at what and how the media covered these topics and how often where there was a divide amongst the scientific community, 
those in media decided to come down on one side or another and dismiss any argumentative opinion outside of the one they were providing. And it really cost audiences a year, maybe two years of valuable reporting and valuable processing that could have been used to to better understand things like the origin of COVID, lockdowns, the necessity of masks, the best vaccine distribution process. All these things were not really left up for debate. Instead, what we noticed were trends in media where folks, again, just came down on sort of one side of things, was very rigid. I mean, you were dismissed as kind of a loon or a conspiracy theory or perpetuating the pandemic if you dared to ask questions. And what has emerged in the subsequent years since this type of reporting began is that there actually is, you know, substantive division amongst the scientific community on some of these questions. And so in hindsight, it would have been much better if the press had reported that, that, hey, look, we're we're trying to figure out these issues. Here's what some people are saying. Here's what others are not. We as the press are just kind of reporting what scientists are saying, but that's not the approach they took. Instead, they often utilized and rested their reporting upon establishment sources. And a lot of the establishment sources are not practicing scientists. They may have PhDs or MDs or whatever, but they're not practicing scientists. They're practicing policymakers. And a lot of news media conflated policymaking with science. And it led to a lot of problems, I think, held back the public from having sophisticated conversations about critical aspects of the pandemic and our response. Well, Nolan Higdon, one of the issues tackled here was about COVID origins. And uh, some now say, well, what's the difference where it came from? We're, we're trying to get past the pandemic, whether it was zoological coming from the wet market in China, or did it come out of a lab by an accident? Was it leaked on purpose? I mean, there are a whole host of things. Sam Husseini has, of course, been doing good independent research on, the, on lab issues. But the lab leak theory was originally just completely dismissed because it was connected to the Trump administration. And sort of as, as part of the Trump derangement syndrome, anybody that like wanted to invest investigate or just do basic research to see how valid of a hypothesis even is this was ridiculed. The establishment media itself, after the Biden administration came in, even had a brief mea culpa and a self-reflective moment when even mainstream establishment media critics themselves and major academic institutions of journalism began to say, you know, we really dropped the ball on the research on that regardless what anyone thinks. And the American public is increasingly interested in the reality of this. And so maybe we should look into it. But what you've discovered and what you write about is that Anthony Fauci and others, they actually worked inside government to dissuade anybody from bothering to investigate any of these claims at all, putting their thumbs on the scale favoring the wet market theory, even though there was actual discussion or debate happening behind the scenes. And again, the article isn't taking sides about what the answer is. Neither are we. We're simply talking about a gross failure of the fourth estate to effectively and ethically and transparently keep the public informed about very important issues. Yeah, um, that's a really good point. And the bears repeating at the top of the article notes that this article is not drawing a conclusion about where COVID began. I note that in the article multiple times. So if anybody accused me of that, all that says is they probably read the title and drew their own conclusion, the 21st century version of judging a book by its cover. But for those who actually do read the article, they will find what you're pointing out. And to to get back to your, your original question, I think it's absurd not to question where this virus began. If it began naturally, there's a whole host of things we have to do or think about to protect a pandemic like this from ever happening again from nature. 
if it came from a lab, there's a whole host of things we need to do to make sure it never comes from a lab again. So, so where it comes from is a really critical question for dealing with the future. I know a lot of people don't like to look to the past because they can't change things that have been done regardless of how uncomfortable they are. But it's very helpful to look at the past to determine what we want to do in the future, especially when it comes to pandemics. It would be like the equivalent of like a scientist in, in 2020 looking at COVID and refusing to look back at like what we did during like the flu epidemic. Of course, the scientists look back at the past. What has been done? What do we know? What, what, how can we use this knowledge? And in the, the article, I talk about how that discovery of knowledge and critical thinking through existing evidence was simply just suppressed throughout the pandemic by some of the policy leaders and the press, rather than holding those people accountable as the first member of the Constitution empowers them to do. Instead, the press really acted like a megaphone and echoed these viewpoints. Fauci knew from his own community, now we know due to leaked communications, that there was debate amongst the scientific community about whether or not a lab leak was plausible or whether or not it was from nature. And instead, he had scientists write up a paper that said that it was 100% natural origins. And then he cited that paper as evidence that the scientific community had consensus, never mentioning that he commissioned the paper and that he suppressed the voices that said a lab leak was plausible. Now we know the FBI, the Senate just had a report that came out and other agencies, the Energy Department is another one, have concluded that the lab leak is plausible or in the Senate committee report, they actually think that's where it originated. There's plenty of other agencies who disagree. The point being, we're still trying to figure this out. We don't know. And the news media, rather than let the citizenry get involved in that debate, dismissed people. They said it was racist to say that this was a lab leak. As Glenn Greenwald pointed out, though, it's really racist to say that Chinese people are unsanitary and eat weird meats that can track viruses in, in open markets. That's racist. But the news media defended that narrative and said that, no, it was racist to think that a scientifically engaged country could make an error or possibly on purpose release it from a lab. Another focus of the article, Nolan Higdon, is the disinformation crisis. The COVID pandemic really, in a lot of ways, provided cover for a war on journalism, meaning dissenting journalism or the right to even ask questions. I mean, the whole core of the scientific method is about testing hypotheses and asking questions. Yet there were times during the pandemic when Fauci in particular said that anyone who critiqued or questioned his conclusions was engaging in an attack on science itself. And then, of course, there's this whole other element, the World Health Organization, United Nations, etc., had a whole joint statement about an infodemic that then spurred this war on disinformation that is more of a euphemism for actively pursuing censorship against unpopular narratives that challenge the status quo. Yeah, if you're coming out of the election of Donald Trump, Donald Trump put the press back on their heels. They put them on the defensive and they used the, the pandemic to reassert themselves as truth. And so if you dare to challenge their narratives, they tried to scapegoat and ruin you. And this works. Look, a lot of people lost their jobs because they wouldn't go along with vaccine mandates. A lot of people in the press were, were suppressed for raising concerns about Fauci and other figures. But some people simply just have too big of audiences and are too influential. Aaron Rodgers, for example. But more to the point, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan announced he had COVID. He, he recovered rather quickly. He looked healthy and was able to manage his show. And he talked about the different remedies he took to deal with COVID-19. And one of them was he tried ivermectin. There's no evidence that ivermectin is responsible for his recovery. But the press sort of lampooned him because he was challenging the, the COVID narrative that it was going to kill you and we were at such great risk, which, you know, some people were. But regardless, they attacked Rogan and lampooned him, said he was taking horse dewormer. 
Now, it's true, ivermectin is used in some horse dewormers, but it's used by billions of people for billions of reasons and tons of medicine. So they chose horse dewormer just to insult the guy and, and lampoon him. And they only stopped once he threatened to, to sue them, of course. That's when they stopped doing that. But it was an illustration of how the press is that friggin' petty that when someone offers an alternative narrative, rather than use evidence to undermine his narrative, they borderline defame him with false and baseless reporting. And of course, Rogan also not a journalist, but has a 11, 12 million person audience, which is four times that of what Fox's Tucker Carlson was getting. And he was just sacked. So the real issue with corporate media and, and people like Joe Rogan is that he's allegedly peeling away some of their audience. And certainly we've talked about that issue before. Nolan, the article goes into a lot of detail. And of course, people can read the article, No Turning Back, at projectcensor.org. We'll have it linked online to the radio program. But it also talks about manufacturing consent and areas where, in particular, there are times when Anthony Fauci admitted to lying and misrepresenting information and disinforming the public himself. But many in the media had to bend over backwards to say he didn't mean that or that's not what was happening. I mean, it's actually quite remarkable, that display of behavior. Can you comment on that briefly? In the science community, they call this like the noble lie, but essentially Fauci said things that he knew were false, but he thought it was for noble reasons. So initially during the pandemic, he said we wouldn't need to wear masks. But then he later on said we do need to wear masks. And he said he knew he was lying when he said we didn't need to wear masks because he didn't want to freak people out. So everybody went out and bought masks and there was none for like first responders. Similarly, he said he knew that we were going to need a much higher vaccine rate, like probably 80% of people vaccine to stop the spread of, of COVID-19. But he originally said much lower numbers and like, I think the 60% and things like that, because he said, I knew I was wrong, but I didn't want to freak people out by proposing such a high number. To me, regardless of the motive, it was illustrative of the fact that this person is okay with lying to the public and the press is okay with accepting it. Even in introductory to journalism classes, we talk about how you have to have credible sources. If this is a person who's not only lied, but admitted to lying, that would not be considered a credible source. Yet the press continue to rely on Anthony Fauci, despite documented litany of opportunities they had to document his lies. Nolan Higdon, we only have about a minute or two left here, and certainly there's so much detail in the article, and it is extraordinarily cited for people to look at the backgrounds of the argument about the press, about the establishment press, their framing, their coverage, their biases, their censorship, their mistakes. Let's include the fact that honest mistakes can be made in these kind of crisis situations, but your article really goes beyond the mistakes and goes beyond things that were not mistakes. They were deliberately done and unfortunately acted in many ways for a political cover or to misinform the American public. You end the article with a mea culpa, sort of the mea culpa and beyond about what the media has been doing since. Can you encapsulate a couple of the ideas from your conclusion? In the conclusion, I talk about how this article is being written around the 20-year anniversary of the Iraq War, and I, and I think that that's a great example of how upteen books and articles have been written about how the news media helped lie the American public into supporting the 2003 invasion of Iraq. People supported a war based on false pretenses. Everyone knows this. You know, I was even watching um, Jeopardy a couple months ago, and it was a clue on Jeopardy. So even like it's a Jeopardy clue. Everyone knows that the uh, weapons of mass destruction did not exist in, in Iraq. But there has been no real accountability for these folks. They move on to the next story and they tell the public not to look at the past, you know, kind of like you were talking riffing on earlier about how people say, well, why does it matter where it started? 
Well, this is why it's important. If the press has these gigantic failures and we just move on to the next story, we're never going to get a robust press. So just like the people who lied us into the Iraq war or lied about Russiagate or lied about QAnon in January 6th and the, uh, the 2020 election, I think all of these people in news media need to be held accountable and really thrown out of the profession. We need credible people doing journalism. And if you participated in acting as a megaphone for the establishment during COVID-19, you should go get a job in PR. You should get out of journalism. Nolan Higdon, author of a recent article, No Turning Back, We Can't Reverse the Damage Done by Poor Pandemic Reporting, but the Fourth Estate Must Do Better. Very information-packed article at projectcensored.org. You can read it for free online. Nolan Higdon, thanks once again for joining us and thanks for your cogent analysis and shining a light into the dark places where we really need to see what's going on in the fourth estate. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Up next on the program, we'll hear from Project Censored Associate Director Andy Lee Roth. We'll be talking about how journalism is the life's blood of democracy. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In the final segment of today's program, we are going to speak with Dr. Andy Lee Roth. He is the Associate Director of Project Censored, co-editor with me of umpteen censored annual volumes now, including most recently, Project Censored State of the Free Press 2023. One of the things that we've been doing at Project Censored here this past year is running a series of articles, largely by folks either associated with the project or on issues around media. And Andy Roth has penned a recent piece for our dispatches in media politics titled The Lifeblood of Democracy. Journalists are on the front lines of battles to defend the right to freedom of expression. And this is, I think, a very timely article. It's an article that really extends from the themes that have run through many censored books, especially the last couple years, with the many different challenges and including serious threats to journalists and people wanting to inform the public about key matters, not just abroad, but right here even in the United States, where the U.S. ranks around 42nd now in press freedom. It's been vacillating between 42 and 44. So that's a far cry from the we're number one of the exceptionalist cries we often hear here in the United States. And Andy Lee Roth, welcome back to the Project Censored Show to talk about this very important issue. Thanks, Mickey. It's always a pleasure to join you on the airwaves. It's great to have you on with us, Andy. So let's hear about the lifeblood of democracy. You've got three major themes and points that, that go throughout this piece. Yeah, I mean, the first is that two cornerstones of democracy, freedom of expression and freedom of information, are under concerted attack in the United States and around the world. A second kind of major point of the Lifeblood article is that journalists are on the front lines of defending those freedoms. Uh, the importance of understanding journalists in the many important roles they play in our lives is, is also being defenders of human rights. And the third key point of the article is that that role is in some sense grounded in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights 
that was instituted in 1948 in the aftermath of World War II and is coming up on its 75th anniversary later this year. So I was prompted to write this article in part thinking about that anniversary and the importance of Article 19 for all of the work that we at Project Censored do, and also inspired by Mickey, our mutual colleague, Misha Herkulis, who is, of course, one of Project Censored's esteemed judges and editor at the Marcaz Review, and Misha's work on the connections between human rights education and critical media literacy education has been an influence on me. So a shout out to Misha and her work for inspiring this article as well. Yeah, absolutely. And this program is airing during the week where Press Freedom Day is on May 3rd. The past week here was a week dedicated to Daniel Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg week. So these themes really continue. And you mentioned Article 19, What exactly is Article 19? And maybe we can connect that to the rest of the article. Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, established in 1948, says, and I quote, everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. And I often think about that, and we actually wrote some about this in the book, The Media and Me, our guide to critical media literacy for young people. In 1948, that notion of seeking, receiving, and imparting information through any media, regardless of frontiers, must have sounded almost like science fiction, beyond frontiers. Of course, in an internet age where digital connections shrink the size of the world and and make some of those boundaries and frontiers a little more permeable, this notion is still a challenging one. Of course, one criticism that people often say is, well, everyone has the right to say anything. That's not necessarily good. And that's something that people have recognized going all the way back to ancient Greece where our notions of free speech in part derive from, the ancient Greek term parhesia is conventionally translated as free speech. But when Michel Foucault gave a series of lectures on the topic in Berkeley in 1983, he noted, among other things, that that Greek term could be translated literally as to say everything, or it could be translated as to tell the truth. And I read Article 19 not as saying everyone has the right to say everything. Incitements to violence against people is not part of the free speech parameters. But the idea that Article 19 provides us with a compass that keeps us oriented in the right direction when we're thinking about restrictions on freedom of information and freedom of expression. And we live at a time when there are significant threats to expression and, of course, even to journalists physically, as we've written about. Maybe you can talk about some of the examples, both here in the U.S. and maybe around the world, of some of the stories that you've been tracking and that you write about here in your article on the lifeblood of democracy. Here in the U.S., I think everyone who pays attention on a regular basis to the Project Censored show knows about efforts to ban books in schools, often done in the name of protecting children, 
Project Censored has written, of course, about efforts by entities like the Department of Homeland Security to, quote, govern misinformation. Globally, we know the role of big tech in kind of engaging in algorithmic gatekeeping in many countries around the world since the COVID-19 pandemic. Governments have passed so-called fake news laws that ostensibly were used to restrict misinformation about the pandemic and public health responses to it, but in fact and in practice have been used by governments to suppress journalism and news outlets that are critical of those governments. Liam O'Connell, who was a Project Censored intern a couple summers ago, Liam and I wrote an article about how that played out or is playing out in Malaysia. That article was published in the Index on Censorship. So around the world, if we go back to Project Censored yearbooks past, we've covered stories about internet shutdowns that take place around the world in specific countries. Also, I always think of the study that PIN America did, I believe it was 2014, showing how government surveillance programs were having a chilling effect on writers, again, all around the world, not just here in the United States. So there are numerous threats to freedom of expression and freedom of information. This is just a kind of lowlights of some of those threats. And one of the points of the article is that the lifeblood of democracy article is that journalists are on the front lines in defending against these threats to freedom of expression and freedom of information. By the very nature of their work, they're helping to inform members of the public about stories and issues and events that we would not otherwise know about. And therefore, they are human rights defenders. And they're human rights defenders of specific human rights, the rights to freedom of expression and freedom of information that are considered by human rights advocates to be foundational human rights. This is an important point. The idea that without the right to freedom of information, in the absence of freedom of expression, people are made more vulnerable to having their other fundamental human rights violated or disrespected. So we must protect freedom of information and freedom access to information as foundational human rights. And therefore, we all need to be concerned about the state of the free press and the plight of journalists to perform that vital civic task. In fact, the First Amendment in the United States protects against government interference. But as we've long discussed and written, there's censorship by proxy. There's a lot of other different challenges and different ways that information is curtailed and controlled right up to and including press freedom violations in the U.S., like arrests or assaults or literal violence against journalists. And you write in the article, Andy Lee Roth, you cite the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker. Yeah. Many people, when they think about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and if they know about Article 19, which declares the freedom of opinion and freedom of expression as, as fundamental human rights, they think, well, that's kind of an anachronism from um, a bygone era of international politics, right? We're so far from 1948 today. Or in the context of the US, many people, if they know about Article 19, would dismiss it as a redundancy. We have the First Amendment here that protects journalists. But I think one of the things that in, if you spend any time looking at the US Press Freedom Tracker and its careful documentation of the shocking regularity with which 
journalists working in the United States are subject to arrest and equipment seizures and assaults and interrogation by law enforcement, you realize that the First Amendment, though it holds press freedom sacrosanct, there's a gap between the ideal and the actual practice. The most extreme version of that is when journalists are killed for doing their work. And again, there's a tendency for a lot of people to think, oh, well, that's something that happens to journalists in other countries. Journalists in Mexico, of course, they're vulnerable to having their lives threatened for doing their work. But it happens here in the United States, too. And one of the cases that I mentioned that I think is so important and shockingly underreported, back in September of last year, Jeff Herman, a longtime investigative reporter at the Las Vegas Review Journal, was stabbed to death outside his home by a former government official who Herman had written about and had had ongoing investigations about. So here in the U.S., despite the protections of the First Amendment, Jeff Herman lost his life for doing his job as a journalist. And that, of course, has a potentially chilling effect on other journalists. And that is the impetus for this article. It may seem far removed to us when we learn that journalists in Nigeria are effectively being censored by bogus copyright claims made against their articles. One of the stories that Project Censored is considering for inclusion in our top 25 story list now, that may seem far removed to us, both by geography and most of us aren't professional journalists. But the key point here is that when journalists' rights to information and expression are thwarted, that has a corrosive effect on all of our rights to freedom of information, freedom of expression, freedom of opinion. And so it is in our collective interest to defend journalists. And that's not an abstract notion. That means that we all need to be making calls to end impunity for crimes against journalists. And there are important organizations, I can't name them all now, but I would say the Committee to Protect Journalists, Reporters Without Borders, the International Press Institute, and many others that do that important work. And those organizations deserve our support for exactly the reasons we've been talking about today. Andy Lee Roth, Associate Director of Project Censored, author most recently of this article we've been discussing. You can find it for free at projectcensored.org. The lifeblood of democracy. Journalists are on the front lines of battles to defend the right to freedom of expression. Andy Lee Roth, thanks not only for your excellent article, but for joining us today to talk about it on the Project Censored show. Thank you, Mickey. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians because they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.